Welcome to Talking in Stations, a podcast about EVE Online. Today, we have a very special guest, Fozzie, with us. How are you doing, Fozzie? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thanks for hanging out uh, at the end of the year here. We have a bunch of special shows that are more relaxed. Uh, we talk about EVE Online, our favorite game. And today, also, we have Carneros. Good morning, everyone. And Astrothi. Greetings, fellow Empyrean. A couple more guests today. You'll recognize Apollo 428 from the DRF area. How's it going, Apollo? How's it going? Uh, and we have Omar Mokhtar from Destructive Influence in NCDOC. Hey, how you doing, guys? All right. Uh, we'll start with Apollo. Uh, sorry, with yeah, with Apollo. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Oh, sure. Um, I was, I'm currently a... Uh, Currently in Finfleet, I also do uh, stuff out in the Drone Lands. Um, I've been playing Eve since 2003, and uh, yeah, basically out in the Drone Lands, I basically uh, I help defend the area. I'm, I'm in charge of the new group that's out there. Um, I also, like I said, I'm in Finfleet as well. I've been there for like eight years, and uh, yeah. Well, Finfleet's there. inside of NC Dot. I didn't uh, I didn't catch that. Finfleet. So you're in NC Dot too. Finfleet yeah. are troublemakers. We let them so, on the show. <laughs> I, oh, prom- I promise to keep Finfleet chat out of the show. Don't worry, you guys are safe. Uh, and Finfleet, for those that don't know, is a corporation that's been around a long, long time. I believe they were part of the original Bob uh, mm-hmm. Alliance. So that's an old. And you've been playing for a while, I suppose. Yes, since 2003. 2003. Wow. Great. Also from NC Dot, we have Omar. How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you're an FC. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background besides that? Um, in-game background, I've been playing EVE since uh, 2005, off, on and off. Uh, and then like uh, 2011, uh, basically nonstop. And um, I've been around in EVE. I've been, I've seen like, uh, I'm basically a content follower. So I just go wherever I can get like fights and, and get fleets to FC. And, uh, but lately I've been... Uh, I've decided to just like settle down with, uh, with a group of friends that I made in Destructive Influence and uh, focus long term. Well, you've been on every side of the political landscape, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much, but not because I have uh, uh, a certain view on politics in Eve. It's just like I said, I just uh, I just go where the where the fights are. You go where the people are. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Well, let's uh, sit in and let's get some Eve talk on the table. That's the metaphor for talking in stations. We all gather around a table and, you know, uh, we, we talk about this game every Sunday and now every uh, midweek, too, which will be Thursday or Friday, depending on uh, where you live, because, you know, time zones, a world world class game. So. All right. Um, first thing we want to talk about is just some player news, and then we'll talk about the onslaught and the December expansion a little bit later on. Um, and we'll start with Keepstar that was destroyed in HTAC5. Uh, who was there? I was there. <laughs> Omar. Tell us what happened. Uh, we got ruffle stumped, basically. <laughs> Seriously outnumbered. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a hard fight for us. Uh, the tie that was awful, despite that the system got reinforced. Um, I was, um, I got, I got, um, uh, a fleet thrown in my hands uh, at, at a certain point, uh, unexpectedly, and um, yeah, we just like basically we made some mistakes tactically, and um, 
I just basically buzzed around with the Munich fleet, shooting everything that came near. Um, focused on, uh, at one point, focused basically focused on on getting our uh, our Supercat fleet up, um, which which like pretty much uh, succeeded, bar like a couple of losses. But I mean, that's that's always going to happen. And um, yeah, the Keepstarter that was a loser actually. The the minute it was uh, it was dropped and, and and the hostiles started pouring in. Did uh, you guys know it was a loser? Uh, when you say did you guys know like i i considered it to be a loser the minute that i saw all the intel flowing around from hostiles and and the shape and form that they were forming up for it i was like okay this is going to be a tough one so uh um, was, was it the kind of keep star well you know every now and then you see a group that drops a keep star quietly and didn't tell the the sky team or the fcs that you know didn't plan it all out and communicate was this like a surprise keep star that didn't get planned enough? Um, it was a surprise to the majority of the alliance, but Lee pretty knew, uh, pretty much knew what they were doing. Uh, in that regard, they kept it quietly. But um, a day, a day before, it became apparent that we were going to have to uh, like form up hard for it and defend it. Um, and we were basically outnumbered. I mean, that that's that's all there is to it. We had like uh, four or five hundred subs, uh, sub fleets. Um, uh, members in subfleet uh, basically spread around uh, between us, PL, uh, Horde was there, I guess a couple of other dudes. Uh, but Imperium, uh, Imperium and, and the friends, they came in with, uh, I think, 2,000, 3,000 players in total. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a hard situation. And they didn't even bring caps. They, like, they brought subfleets themselves, uh, mostly. I mean, in the end, a couple of dreadnoughts started trickling in. But, um, yeah, it wasn't the tactical decisions... Um, uh, like I said, I wasn't aware of of, um, of what was decided ta- to do tactically, but um, at one point I got the, I got the, the, the main fleet handed uh, handed over, um, and I just tried <laughs> to make the best of it. I mean, it was a uh, it was a hard situation. So it was dropped on your lap. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Killer B unfortunately got uh, got killed pretty early in the fight, and uh, he was a good sport. He was like, okay, you know, he could have reshipped. I mean, it was like uh, a four are away. So, uh, but he was he was a good sport about it. He was like, okay, Omar, you're up, and um, told me to uh, basically. He's always a good sport. Yeah. Now, so, I heard a rumor that you guys had trouble coordinating like Sinosaurus jammers. Is that was that a factor in in trying to run your part, or no? Um, that had nothing to do with anything. Yeah, as far as I know, the the Sino jammers were just like in place and uh, uh, they were on. Um, to be honest, it like I, the, the mechanics have changed a little bit on that regard. I haven't looked into it much uh, that much yet. Um, I don't think that was a big issue. It was more of a more of a decision of how to position our super capital fleet. Um, I think we uh, could have done a better job at that. I mean, we uh, decided to huddle everything uh, uh, between the two pillars in the Keepstar. I would have chosen for a different approach myself, but like I said, it's um, uh, I was unexpectedly uh, dropped into uh, <laughs> into running the fleet. You mentioned that there was really bad tie-dye, and somebody in the chat seemed to agree with you. But if I remember correctly, I went to that or I watched the fleet on Twitch. And there were several points in which it was not at max tie-dye, and there was over 2,000 people in the fight. So was it worse than normal? Was it better than normal? How did the servers actually handle it? Uh, from my point of view, I, 
like my, my experience from that fight was it was bad tie-dye at worst the whole entire fight. I mean, before we hit 2K people in system, it was already 10% tie-dye. Um, and um, it was really hard. Uh, like, like you have to ping around the grid with your, with your sub, subcap fleet all the time, but you're, you're back, you're in a back foot the whole time because of, uh, you can't really anticipate. You have to, uh, like you hit a, you initiate fleet and, and you're always like five, five to 10 minutes late, basically. That, that's how bad it was. Sure. But I guess my point is, is that over the last year, we've had a lot of big fights and it seems that the server's doing better each time. Um, can, does CCP Fozzy have any insight as to what this looks like from CCP side of things? When it comes yeah, to yeah. fights, I definitely can talk a little bit about what we saw in the server logs for it. Um, Omar, were you experiencing any um, issues with modules activating or such? Because that's usually the big sign that something has is uh, so loaded that even Tidai can't take care of it. Uh, we we didn't think we saw any of that in the logs, or very much of that at least. But I'm interested in hearing what your experience was. Well, every, everything activated. It was just like uh, you activate and then it gets put into effect. Uh, and, yep. and, and the time between hitting the button and, and actually seeing the, the response, that was like literally more than five minutes every time. So, uh, I mean, yeah, the modules were, they responded. But like I, I hit a fleet warp and I went to make a pizza, watch a movie with my wife, and then came back and see a, a fleet finally warp. Basically, that. I'm exaggerating right now, but that's basically the feeling that I had with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty consistent with a um, a server node that's fully loaded, but that is able to at least keep processing things. Um, which is, yeah, that's what we saw from our end as well. Um, it was obviously a very highly loaded system. Um, it was one that we actually ended up we we emergency remapped it during the day uh, because there was no. Um, fleet fight requests sent in for that system. Uh, so we ended up uh, getting a report actually from the CSM letting us know that there was a system that needed to be remapped and we talked to the GMs and got it remapped on the fly. Anyone who was in the system a couple hours ahead of time would have noticed the uh, the message that got sent. Um, but uh, thankfully that happened, otherwise it would have been a lot worse. Well, from from my observation on the other side of the, of the war lines, it wasn't... It was a kind of a case of it was a it was just good timing to form a fleet, and a lot of people felt like going, and they formed a fleet, and it filled, and people were screaming for another fleet, so they formed another, and then those two took off, and then they formed another a little bit later. People were saying, "Are there going to be any more fleets?" And it just and it just kind of mushroomed and and grew as time went on and more fleets went and i think by the time we were done imperium had sent like six fleets maybe and it just it wasn't an intended thing in advance where you knew okay there's going to be three thousand people in that system we need to have a node mapped or something it was literally just sort of happened i think you had seven fleets up uh, imperium seven sounds very you know i think i think you're right yeah and um, on our side, we had, uh, well, obviously, we had an NCPL was on fleet, on grid. Uh, Pandemic Horde was formed. I, I'm, I can't remember if, if Horde and NPL were, like, uh, on the same fleet or crossed over or not. But uh, in terms of numbers, it was basically around 500 versus 2K plus. I mean, that, that's what Whoa. it was, basically. Really? Yeah, we, yeah, we put it up was a, like, um, like 2,500, a little bit more than that at its peak, if I remember. Well, I mean that's like four to one, isn't it? Uh, five thousand, uh, sorry, five hundred against two thousand. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like I said, it was a hard fight, and uh, that's and why you thought done. it was doomed. Nah, before that, like before the fleet started, you're like, I'm like, you're in the channels. You see the intel flowing around. You see dudes already smuggling uh, on the other side. Uh, I mean, like I have friends all over the place. They're like, everyone's like, basically, okay. You, do you even realize what's coming at you? Um, and once I started get, <laughs> to get a get get a good sense of what was coming at us, I was like, okay, we're uh, we're gonna have to pucker up and uh, and basically, uh, you know, uh, put forward our best foot. We put up, put up a hell of a fight, but it just wasn't enough, unfortunately. Right. Well, okay, so uh, that was a big fight happened in HTAC 5, which I believe is the staging ground for NC Dot. Uh, they weren't able to get their Keepstar up. It was destroyed by a combination of people, and mostly Imperial Legacy, which would be Imperium and Legacy Coalitions combined. And that was a just for the record. Person just for fight. the record, we didn't we didn't want that keep star anyway. We just move on. And <laughs> Already <laughs> replaced. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> if you if you see Brisk Rubal, you have to give him a hard time. He ended up being uh, top damage on the keep star kill mail, and uh, they were, they were teasing him about that. Were you not following the FC's commands and just kept kept your uh, missiles on it the whole time? Anyway, That's part yeah. of his. That's part of his meta re-election campaign. Yeah, it's a good strategy. Being the top of a heavily viewed kill mail is a good advertising spot. That name's, that name's going to go on the headshot list right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trip him before he gets to the finish line. All right, so moving on real quick. We have um, Snuff is... Uh, well, Ash, we would throw it to you because aren't they kind of stomping your guys? Yeah, well, okay, so after... Uh, you know, World War B and all that stuff. Uh, Snuff moved back to Losec. Um, and now that they've been kind of empowered by their uh, affiliation with the Imperium, they set to basically subjugating all of Losec. So they w spent quite a bit of time kind of sweeping through um, the Glente Caldari war zone and taking down any like large engineering complexes, moon mining platforms, I think. Uh, a lot of the customs offices, just any kind of infrastructure that was production related um, in LOSEC. And so they killed our Asbel about a month ago, I think, um, and a few other things. But uh, more recently, uh, Rapid Withdrawal, who is a uh, basically Snuff's ally within Galente Militia, uh, reset everybody uh, and I believe left the militia. And that kind of heralded a, a, a new phase of this aggression. And now Snuff has followed us to our Nullsec pockets and have recently uh, anchored Astrohuses in all of our um, major systems. And so now we're waiting out that timer. So I think today is the first big timer for this invasion. Are you nervous? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> so... This all started, I think, when uh, we, we started working with a few other people and trying to form a coalition to go do something else somewhere else. Um, and that involved uh, Fwedit, I believe. And uh, one, of the one of the titans, one of our allied titans, were jumping to our Fortizar, and probably about 15 snuff titans jumped on him and blew him up right there on top of our Fortizar. So, yeah, a little nervous. Well, but we got it. We got it. We'll, we'll fight. We, we, I mean, we fought. We, we fought incredibly terrifying uh things before when it, you know like uh when black legion tried to knock us out um and tissue with tissues help from pure blind and other stuff like that so it'll be fun either way we'll, we'll fight it 
Snuff, right. Snuff lately just seems to be doing all kinds of stuff all over the map. Interesting stuff, not all expected, not not sending necessarily clear signals to as who their friends are and who their friends aren't. It's some sometimes tricky. Uh, uh, don't say anything, CCP Fuzzy, because I wouldn't be surprised if you had an alt and snuff. <laughs> I'm I'm actually really oh, wow. surprised at how um, industrial they've been. You know, a lot of us expected them to, uh, you know, like rent out a lot of the stuff that once they've destroyed it. But it actually seems that they're using a lot of the facilities that they've, you know, been able to take over. So they're they're very much kind of functioning. Uh, they they've obviously learned some very good lessons from the Imperium because they are. Um, you know, making sure that they do what they need to do to be a powerhouse within the current Eve meta. What What is the current Eve meta in Losec? Because it used to be sort of like a tell tell us what's going on. Because Snuff seems to be well, but by that I mean you know the game has clearly moved towards you know empire based entities that have you know an industrial wing and a military defense function and you know all that kind of stuff a more fully fleshed organization uh, as opposed to say pandemic legion all of 5 years ago which had very little roots and just kind of ran around and was a boogeyman to everybody um it's easy to think that snuff is that because they have kind of provided that function of being that boogeyman that's always there ready to um you know kind of suppress anybody else's actions um, but at the same time, like I said, they've they've they seem to have picked up on kind of the industrial nature um, that's necessary nowadays. And they're I mean, they've got plenty of Titans now. And so they're they're doing what they got to do. They're going to be a, uh, a force to to watch for the next little while, I think. I, I don't think they have a choice. Uh, they, they have to have to like you know, transit into this type of game before uh, before anything else because otherwise they will just like not be able to to keep up their uh, level of gameplay I mean, it's just like the meta right now is so that, that anyone that says he's he or she is pvp minded they're gonna have to do some form of industry to keep up otherwise it's just gonna get like played out it is definitely a money-making meta right now can we make fun of them and shame them like into are you are you not watching twitch chat Shout out to Sadis for his color commentary. Uh, yes, no. you can make. But you have to read it now for our audio listeners. Oh, oh, oh! I can't say that out loud. You, you stepped <laughs> in it. You have to wipe it off your shoe. All right, we'll uh, let that one go. But um, I talked to uh, these FC Hi Want To from Snuff. That's his name, Hi Want To uh, Destroyer. I think. Yeah, the um, name is as weird as the person. He's not weird, is he? Anyway, don't answer that. Um, Fozzie, Losec, how has it changed over the years? And uh, because the reason I ask is he said, oh, we're just trying to get, you know, the, the content that we can get and a bit of a sour note. So I wonder if you can talk about how Losec has changed over the years. Oh, I think that's a that's a big topic. Losec has changed a lot. Um, it tends to change most often from uh, changes in alignment of player groups. Um, uh, so, like you saw the uh, there was a, a while where there was this uh, big rivalry between Snuff and Shadow Cartel, and then over time, Snuff has sort of grown. The um, uh, different periods of time when groups have joined and left faction warfare, uh, operated in low sec and as kind of a, a way of um, launching attacks into null sec. There's been a lot of different of different roles that it's taken, and it is it is more than just like there's no single core role for any area of space in Eve. 
Um, we're always looking for more stuff uh, for all areas of space, more stuff for people to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's players are going to be what make the content in a game like Eve. I think there- that uh, I think that um, a lot of people give credit to like the the new bases, star, uh, you know, like Astrohuses and you know other structures for for changing low sec. But honestly, I think that the change really started when super capitals were allowed to operate in. Um, in low sec in the same sort of way as they ha- were in null. I think that that's really what heralded this kind of move to apex forces taking over low sec. So you're talking about like the doomsday devices, stuff like that? Yeah, just the fact that they can now push that high level of power into into low sec. Yeah, definitely. Those elements have always, like supers have always been a powerful force in low sec. I remember back in the days before, uh, before Hector's, when a super capital, a, a super carrier especially, was um, almost impossible to tackle on low sec without any bubbles. Uh, it was also before you could put a bunch of points onto them. And the first time that a uh, super carrier died in low sec was because people managed to keep it bumped long enough to uh, kill it. That was, that was a pretty impressive kill. Um, but did we talk about the... Um the top down income versus the bottom up income and like how you used to be able to just kind of dominate an area militarily with a few people and hold the moons and get rich off that to subsidize your war machine and how um, one of my favorite features in the last few years has been the, the moon mining changes were amazing and imaginative and those now have to be you have to have people to you have to have a workforce to actually work the mining involved to get the money out of the moons now so that kind of a change has that uh, affected, like, is it worth like living in low set kind of thing? Yeah, I think that kind of thing has had a big effect. Uh, basically, from our perspective, we saw uh, that there was a lot of people out there that, that were mining, that were interested in mining, they're interested in industrial activities, but it was often hard for them to, uh, to get kind of paired up with more PvP-focused players. Uh, there was a lot of groups that... Uh, just didn't didn't feel like they had any interest in in bringing some of the people that were that played the other aspects of the game into their groups. And since uh, the moon mining changes, uh, since the some of the changes we've made to mining over the past couple of years, we've been seeing a lot more of that. We've seen a pretty massive increase in the total amount of mining happening in low sec, unsurprisingly because of that. Um, with a lot more people out in space uh, actually harvesting some of these resources, it's really interesting watching the. Um, uh, the activity in uh, moon mining continue to to grow over time. We saw a big increase right when it launched, another big increase when it expanded to high sec and to wormholes. But then it's actually been steadily increasing over time as well. Every Basically, every month has been the new record for most um, people, most individual characters mining moons. Uh, and it just keeps breaking that record over and over again. You, uh, another thing that changed with the moon mining changes, I'm a, I'm an alliance executive, and uh, the the things that I have to deal with in terms of drama in the corporation from time to time has changed a bit too. This morning it was I woke up to this guy with his thirty workwells and uh, is alts is warping in and bumping all the other workwells on the in the anomaly, and I, I'm like. Honey, if you warp thirty workwells into a fleet, some of them are going to bump. I mean, they're they're big ships. That's what they, he's not aiming each workwell at you. Just smile, and you know, if you get bumped too far away, turn off your little button thingy and get closer again. And it's 
Yeah, no, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, those those kind of things, uh, they're one of the greatest aspects of when you bring a bunch of people together into an area of space, have them living together, the social friction that comes from it. Uh, in in my earlier days playing EVE, it, that used to be uh, the belts, because belt ratting was the core uh, way of making money in NullSec. And uh, you used to shoot just some of the NPCs in the belts. You would never shoot all of them because you wanted the same group to respawn. And if somebody else came in and started shooting the, the asteroids in your belt, it pissed you off so much and it caused so much friction. Oh, God, yeah. breaking those chains back then were a pain in the ass. And then, you know, yeah, it's mining drama. It tells you that mining's growing. And, of course, you can you can just turn on D-Scan in some of these systems and see massive numbers of of not just work wolves, Mackinaws, it depends where it is, all kinds of stuff. But yeah, it's very popular. Uh, Astrothi? Yeah, so one of the things that was interesting, specifically when it came to the moon mining in LOSEC, is that the moons in LOSEC increased in quality significantly during this change. Um, previously, LOSEC had eh moons, and then the best moons were in NullSec, but actually in this seeding, Fozzie can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think LOSEC was actually given... It was definitely like higher than before, but maybe even better than in Null. I'm not sure. Uh, I know uh, that yes, it actually was. It was very good. The uh, the lowest or the lower tier, um, the uh, like zero point three, zero point or zero point two, zero point one uh, systems. Those actually were um, they had the best moon distribution in the. Yeah, so the practicality of that means that um, the low-sec moons is where the money is. But at the same time, um, it's extraordinarily dangerous to mine in low-sec. You know, you can't secure it in the same way that you can in null-sec. And this goes back to the importance of what Snuff is doing, right? Because, uh, you know, we for a long time, we actually had a really valuable moon, but we had a difficult time mining it because of two reasons. One, um, we didn't have a mining force already. And so we had to like stand up this whole nother group of people with a totally different mentality and find these people to, to like match in with us and then get everybody to match and like understand that your guys's goals are aligned, which was a very uh, difficult cultural thing to get people to kind of understand. But even on top of all of that, it was just so dangerous that the miners just didn't want to, to do so because it would be interrupted so much. Meanwhile, if you're an entity like Snuff, since there's such a high threat behind what they do, you know, the, the, the chances are they can mine in a much more safe way in low sec because less people are going to be inclined to try to mess with them and they have a bigger threat to try to back up that. Um, so I wonder if they're not only able to control more of this high-valued stuff in low sec, but also access it more freely because of the intimidation factor i've um i don't get into mining at all like like ever like the last time i've mined well I, that was a different lifetime i think the last time i mined i was like about to jump out of a window and slip my wrist on the way down i mean that's how how bad yeah. i think it is but <laughs> um uh there's two things here like on snuff uh like snuff is the type of alliance that that like they have their the guys that have alts everywhere. I mean, they don't have a hard time uh, getting the ores to uh, even if they don't do industry themselves within that alliance. I'm pretty sure they do it elsewhere. Um, but um, I have a question for Fazi here. Like on the work, I feel that it's like highly overpowered. And is there anything to expect on nerfing it uh, anytime soon or midterm? Uh, quite possibly. It is something that uh, that's a ship that we made very powerful. 
um, partly because it had been such a joke for so long that uh, there's an element of you need to you need to get people over the hump of trying to use it. Um, I think it would be really good to take another look at it. Uh, it's a lot of that's just a question of finding the time uh, to be able to uh, put some more work into it. Because um, the, the reason I ask is, is, is what I've seen lately is it's, it's so easy to, to pump out supers and titans uh, with the work um, mechanics the way they are. Um, it's, not even, it's not even funny anymore. I mean, it's just, it used to be a big deal to just build a dread or a carrier. Now, like everyone's shitting out uh, titans and, and, and supers like it's nothing. So that's why I'm like, you know, it might have a look at it um, and make yep. it possibly make it a lot like like a lot uh, harder to to get into that stuff. I mean, it should be more rewarding, and more reward means more risk. And there is also already a lot of risk to it. But um, I think also the mechanics make it make it uh, altogether also way too easy. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the an even bigger factor than the oracles uh, in the kind of speed of super capital proliferation has been uh, the engineering complexes. Because uh, one of the barriers to building super caps before was just that it was such a pain in the ass to do. Um, it was a just a really challenging UI. It uh, was something that less people were interested in getting involved with. Um, so the the addition of Satios, that's when we saw the real. Um, uh, significant um, inflection point in the number of super caps in the game. Uh, at the end of the day, this is something we've talked about a number of times in the past. Um, it's really important that we make sure that a ship like a super capital is uh, is viable, is balanced at any number existing in the game because at the end of the day there's no uh, actual restrictions on the number of them it's not like a ship that there can only be seven of them there can only be 200 of them uh, and given the ability to create an infinite number uh, eve players are creative enough are uh, committed enough that they will create an infinite number of them uh, and so the trick is to make them balanced with any number rather than uh, trying to put too many uh, roadblocks in the way of building them i think I remember at one point you guys were kicking around the idea of a set number of Titans and in order to build more Titans, you'd have to destroy a Titan in order to get a piece out of it in order to build a new one. Obviously, that didn't go anywhere. I think that wouldn't be something we'd do with the existing Titans, um, but uh, that would be an interesting concept for, for a new ship class, I think. And it is something yeah we've talked about a number of times in the past. Um, the uh, I think it would be really fun to play with. Uh, the challenges would be you need to make sure the ship is destroyable. Like you would have to it would probably have to be a ship that you can't log off in somehow. Like it would stay in space when you logged off or something, because um, otherwise it would be too easy to grab them all and avoid anyone else being able to touch them. I also want to echo what Fozzie was saying and remind everybody of what the player basis mentality was prior to the rope wall change. Because really, all the way up to the release of it, everybody thought that the roll call was going to continue to be useless even after the change. Because that was, I mean, like, it was just such an ingrained idea that the roll, like, mining was dangerous, nobody would protect them, uh, and it doesn't matter what you give the roll call, it would just, it wouldn't give a function. And the only function of the roll call at the time was off-grid boosts. And so uh, there was this idea that like the people that had rogue walls had it to be like a foreman for their group instead of an active participant. So all the people that had the rogue walls were not really happy with the changes, but at the same time, like you wanted to have higher adoption. So it was a really complicated puzzle to solve. And so I definitely understand why the choice to like err on the side of making it too good, because otherwise it would have had no adoption. 
Yeah, and we've nerfed it a couple of times since the launch. Uh, I expect that at some point, I can't, I won't say for sure. I'm not going to try to promise anything right now. You heard it here. I would expect that there will be more changes at some point in the future. Uh, Oracle nerf incoming bosses confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) Right along with Half Life 3. All right. Uh, um, Yeah, we, we, uh, we have some questions from chat. I'll just uh, see if we can uh, let's see here. Since we're on this topic, and we'll move on right after this to Ethereum Reach and beyond uh, before we come back to actually talking about the expansion. Uh, but let's finish up this topic real quick with uh, from Eve Ironwolf says, any thoughts on a device to disrupt moon pools for smaller groups griefing so the bigger groups can just set, can't just set a 30-day pools and walk away? Um, so to explain that when you, um, harvest a moon, you're pulling a rock off it and exploding it, and then your guys can go and mine it. And so he's asking, is there a way to disrupt that for smaller groups so they can disrupt bigger groups that are doing that kind of industry? Yeah. So, um, when it comes to disrupting in between the actual extraction events, uh, the core mechanic we have there is uh, attacking the structure itself. So if you if you hit the structure, uh, you put a new second reinforce, then it'll it'll pause it. Uh, you'll uh, can get them disrupted that way. Uh, we wanted to try to encourage people to attack when there's going to be people in space, uh, rather than it just becoming a time zone back and forth thing. Uh, and that's why we put the the core shooting ships mechanic with smaller groups in uh in actual extraction moment because uh, then there's that's going to be when there's going to be ships in space and you can actually get an engagement not not to be a, a faux csm person but i think what he wants to do is shoot things so wouldn't it be cool if you could actually destroy the asteroids that were created you can like create locust fleets to wipe out their crop i think that would be pretty funny like at, after the thing is uh, already shattered yeah, that'd be interesting yeah, yeah. you can also yeah. do that with your mining ships too Get yeah, in there with, the, with a bunch of like prospects or something, and uh, and just yeah. ninja mine under them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I, I love that idea of doing that. But it just seems like people just want to shoot things; they don't want to harvest things. It bad. might be interesting I, to introduce like a special mining laser that uh, mines a lot, but it wastes most of it, so you only get a small amount, but it consumes a bunch from the asteroid. I can confirm oh, what wow. Matter all said. <laughs> you want to shoot things, right? Yeah, it is in tropic miners that that ramp up how much yield they have over time. Mining is just shooting in slow motion. Yeah, what if we just let you swap out the visual effect on a miner to to look like a (laughs) a missile? I I guarantee you, you will have a thousand percent adoption if that's the case. Actually, you could, you could, you could actually totally replace the mining uh, animation with it, like it shooting a missile, blowing off some chunks, and then tractor beaming it in. And as long as it all happens in the same time, then maybe people will be <laughs> All right. Do, are we on a really tight schedule? Can I do like little sidetracks? Uh, is yeah, that you can do anything you want? Go ahead. Okay. So uh, that blowing stuff up at, off of asteroids and mining it is actually something we've prototyped in the past. Uh, a while back, we took a uh, a team and put them on um, kind of a kind of deep prototyping. It was a small team, uh, gave them several months uh, and asked them to try to prototype concepts that could uh, make a new mining mechanic. Um, They ended up coming up with a bunch of options. There was stuff like uh, Minecraft-style voxel mining, where you actually, like, the asteroids were gigantic and you would 
move your way with a ship through tunnels in the asteroid and break new holes and find veins. Uh, there was the ones where, yeah, you blew chunks off and you had to like heat them up to a certain temperature so that it would give you the best yield with a laser and that kind of some really interesting concepts. Uh, the only part of it that ended up actually making it into the game was um, one of the prototypes was placing little um, mining drones on the asteroid. They would then spit out uh, little bits of uh, ore that you'd have to click to collect. And that became the um, the loot, oh, the loot uh, launching into space mechanic from hacking minigames for a while, yeah. Uh, which then eventually got taken out again. But uh, that's the part of it that actually did make it into the game for a while. So that was a long time ago then. Yeah, yeah, this was 20... 13 maybe something like that it's all it's all relative because that was so that was like the other day for some of us and that was the <laughs> ghost sites right that was the uh the loot mechanic for ghost sites that when it first came yeah out. it was used for all hacking for a while yeah for um oh. it was introduced alongside the the hacking mini game the the little game where you have uh, the virus you're trying to uh, get into a machine with um and uh there was elements of it i think were really good but there's others that weren't as solid so we ended up pulling the thing out and uh, kind of simplifying it back. yeah so for th- people that don't remember um back in the day when you hacked a can it didn't there was no mini game it just had a chance of success depending on it which used model to be basically doing. just like salvaging for yeah. people that are used to Basically, yeah. So then they introduced this concept that when you were done hacking with the minigame, it like spit out 10 or so cans and then you would click on them. But the key was is that you couldn't click on them all before they disappeared. And so people would have to scan the cans to figure out which ones were valuable so that way you knew which ones you wanted to grab stuff out of. Uh, the one good thing about it was it made it so that you could bring somebody else with you to like try to like collect the cans and maybe learn things. But then it, in practice, it ended up being really boring for the second person that just has to wait there until cans shoot out. So ultimately it got scrapped. Yeah, yeah. The, at the time, the team balanced it so that one person clicking could pretty easily get as much uh, loot out of it as you could before. So the old system that would just give you the loot, you could get equal loot to that with just one person clicking. But if you brought somebody else along, you'd get even more. Uh, but in practice, uh, it ended up feeling punishing. Even though the baseline was actually what you had before and you were just getting bonus stuff, it still felt like if I'm not getting 100%, then I'm being punished for not bringing someone else. Uh, And that's always a challenge in any video game is that uh, the way you distribute rewards, it's really easy for it to feel like a punishment rather than a reward. Yeah, the biggest pain point was you could scan the can, see that there was something valuable, succeed in the hack, and then still not get the item. And that just... Either way, it's better now. Right. So um, that's really cool. So you guys have explored some of the stuff, and it's really interesting to hear. Uh, I am going to run us back, though, to uh, Ethereum Reach. In that area, there was a huge battle um, that seems to be associated with something called the Quiet War. Uh, Paula, do you know what's going on over there, since that's kind of near your area? So basically, Ethereum Reach is like... Um, the neutral states, essentially. Uh, you've got a bunch of people trying to lay claim to the SOV out there. Um, some of them are allied to some of the bigger groups in drone lands, and they're just duking it out. You've got uh, Proethean Alliance. You've got uh, No Value. And they're all they're allied with each other, and they're going up against um, Unspoken, uh, 
just a game. I'm not sure how much they're tangling with Skill Yourself, but I know Skill Yourself is blue to uh, uh, Unspoken in just a game. And then there's some other randoms out there that are joining in, and then Scourge makes uh, random appearances and blows a bunch of stuff up. Scourge, Triumvirate. Uh, yeah. I just I noticed uh, yesterday that uh, Try actually took two systems off of... Um, sorry, not Try. Uh, Skill Yourself took two systems off of Try and Innsmouth. So that was that was pretty interesting. I actually didn't know they were in a software with each other. Yeah, it's been going on for a while. Uh, skill you and uh, and try and vert. Yeah, I know they've been uh, going back and forth, you know, shooting at each other for content and everything. And the last I heard, it was you know just friendly content. But I, I, maybe they just agreed to start taking soft off. That's serious drama from what I uh, from yeah. what I'm getting. <laughs> uh, hasn't try lost like five corporations recently? Uh, well, one of them uh, recently joined uh, NC Dot, actually. Um, uh, uh, MCAL uh, is the ticker, I think. They they, they hooked up with NC Dot. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of other corps that basically... I mean, what, yeah, that's, there's not, nothing new there. I mean, corps change alliances every day. Yeah, they also lost uh, Sanctuary of Shadows. I'm not sure exactly uh, how strong of a corp that was, but I mean, it's another 150-man corp right out of the... Right out of- Pretty inactive. Oh, okay. That explains that. Yep. Well, the, the idea that corporations are moving to bigger alliances, um, Fozzie, I'll bring you back in. Is that like, I know that you guys wanted to work on what it means to be a group in EVE Online. Like you, you were not necessarily thinking of abolishing Alliance or Corp or anything like that, but instead of addressing the coalition issue, um, uh, by making it official that a coalition could be recognized by the game, that you might look at the nature of grouping completely differently as like societies and stuff like that. Did you guys still, are you still contemplating things like that? Yeah, I'd definitely love to do some more work on that. We've written up some designs in the past for um, uh, sort of making corps a lot more modular, allowing corporations to be part of other corporations. Uh, then you could just build whatever structure you would want out of that. You could make an alliance out of a corporation of corporations. You could build a coalition out of a corporation of corporations of corporations, whatever you'd want to do. Um, you could have individuals as part of those. So you could have like a, a director directly in the alliance instead of in the executor corp um i can't make any promises about that kind of stuff all of that is is just at kind of the conceptual stage uh i would really love to work on uh some of those systems i think there's a lot of really cool opportunities in a game like eve that is intensely social um and on a larger scale than just about anything else um but uh yeah it's just it's all a matter of finding uh finding the time resource allocation and uh, seeing what we can get uh get time to actually implement. Um, can you elaborate on like what, what, what is the expected outcome of, of basically putting in a mechanic that allows coalitions to, to exist, like on paper? Like, like what, are, what, are you, like, what are you looking like to do? coalition bookmarks? Yeah, at the end of the day, it would be to just make... Um, the, the core goal would be to make corporations as flexible as possible. So uh, you'd be able to kind of do whatever you want with them. Use them as just a, a box that holds either individual characters or other corporations. And then you can build whatever you want. It could mean that essentially the concept of an alliance or a coalition would get replaced by some new concept that EVE players would develop. Or they'd keep using the same names and um, just use it more effectively. But yeah, that, that w- kind of thing would give you a solution to things like alliance bookmarks. Um, it would give you a solution to things like coalition bookmarks if you wanted to. Um, you'd be able to have assets that are owned by these larger 
uh, organizations at the moment. Um, corporations are, are really the core unit in the EVE code base. And that means that if we want to have an asset in space, it needs to be owned by a corporation, um, which in the case of soft stuff, we default it to the executor corp. And that works okay, but it would be nice to be able to have things owned by alliances. Uh, and then the same with things like uh, bookmarks and um, fittings and things like that, um, is that it would be really nice to be able to allow whatever we want to be owned by whatever you guys want um, to allow whatever structure people dream up to be formable in the game. I want to so, create the board. Oh, so, uh, but uh, like all of that sounds great, but I've got two questions. One, is this actually actively being worked on? And, and two, how big of a technical challenge is this? Is this something that we should even think about looking forward to in the next year to? Um, I don't get your hopes up. Uh, in general, no. Yeah, like, like in general, I always, I always try to be really careful when talking about this blue sky stuff because of the fact that it's easy for people to interpret it as we're actively working on it. The last active work that went into this is that I wrote up a design document four years ago, and it's been sitting in a box. Um, so maybe something will happen. Maybe it won't. Uh, that's just sort of the way the way game development goes, is we're always looking at a whole bunch of different options. And then at any given time, we only have a couple of things that we can actually work on at a time. It's sort of the, the blessing and curse of working on a game that has so many features. Uh, unlike most MMOs, Eve, we don't we don't kind of throw out the old features and completely replace them uh, all the time. Which means that this is a, a gigantic video game, uh, but it also means that uh, there's no way for us to touch everything on a regular basis. Have you have you um, are, are you like looking into how this would affect the Wardex system as well? Because I can see some implications. I would. I think that would be very interesting to do. Um, at the moment, we are working on the Wardex system, uh, but the Wardex system, uh, the changes we're working on right now would not be able to wait for this larger set of changes to corporations. Uh, so what we're working on right now is independent from that kind of rework. So one of the things that you worked on for Onslaught was the new navigation structures, which are gorgeous. Um, thank you very much for those. Uh, the the uh, we're in for those of you listening. We're right now in that I guess it's a two week period in between the introduction of the new structures and the uh, 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 deactivation of the old structures. So both systems can work, and people are running around like Santa's elves trying to get the new bridges and stuff built and set up in place in time for when the old one turns off. Okay. Right. Yes, indeed. Yep. That two week period ends uh, next Tuesday, two weeks after the onslaught expansion. So we're running around like headless chickens. Our, our logistics guys are, it takes about, takes three days base time to build a, uh, a Stargate. And that, that gate, uh, you need two of them, one at each end, uh, anchored and facing each other, so to speak. So for each bridge, you need two. And people are cranking them out as fast as they can. I know for a fact that Imperium will not have all of theirs done, obviously, by, by that time. I don't know if found, if the Bastion will have ours done, because we don't have as many. But Imperium as a whole, yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, they're gorgeous. They're, you should stop and look at one if you haven't been through and just watch ships coming. Pick one that has ships coming and going. It's beautiful. Uh, what uh, We loved that you sent out pings 
saying when the first one went on and what jumped through it and all that. That was that's exciting, fun minutia. Uh, tell me about the reactions you've been getting. Uh, yeah, it's been really great to see people taking advantage of these things. Um, when it comes to the the tweets about the first ones, that was just something we were, of course, watching very closely at the office about uh, what uh, people were doing with them, watching the builds, watching who put them into, who bought the blueprints, who put them into build, who researched the blueprints first. Um, and uh, the first deployment of the structure happened to be while some of us were still at the office on Friday. And so uh, we threw that tweet together and then uh, followed up again uh, over the weekend. Uh, it's been uh, really cool watching these things get placed. Uh, the, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right that not all of them, not all the existing bridges and um, beacons are going to be replaced by uh, Tuesday, which is what we expected. We expected just kind of the, the most important ones to be there. Um, but I think we're on track for almost half of the uh, galaxy saturation to be back uh, by Tuesday at the current rate. So, so there was no a funny no ping, though. There was a funny ping by one of the CCP artists saying, are you excited about the new stuff? And I'm giggling because I know that it couldn't possibly have been scientifically have been built and deployed in the time period which he was already posting to Twitter. And I thought, you just, you know, what, what are we looking at, the singularity ones? He, he was excited, though. It's good to see the excitement around the employees. So is it fair to say there won't be any extension for people who can't make the transition fast enough? Uh, no. I mean, the, at the end of the day, it's uh, the period is so that people could get the the most important, the highest priority ones up in time. We don't want to have the two systems existing side by side for too long. Uh, there's definitely some awkwardness and weirdness that comes from that. Uh, the ability to, for instance, build these super powerful uh, jump bridge routes by interspacing old style jump bridges and the new jump gates. Um, you can end up with them with only having to do short warps and then you're kind of back to uh, getting into the gate network. Um, and also actually the issue with um, Sino Jammers. Uh, the current system with the overlap allows you to double up on Sino Jammers, which is a very powerful defensive advantage. Uh, so we wanted to keep that grace period something that was um, enough for people to get the really the worst of the disruption out of the way, enough to make sure that short enough to make sure that there isn't too much of this weirdness of the overlap, and short enough to make sure that um, there was a good um, a good bit of gameplay for industrialists trying to rush to be the the first to get these things out because that's always something that comes with a new structure release is that it ends up being like a it's the equivalent of a war but for the people that build structures it's their their moment to shine well one the experience of putting them on for us one of the things was uh, plan in advance where the routes would be, who's going to buy the BPOs, where they're going to research them, where they're going to manufacture them, um, and then where to where do we need to put down a new Fortizar or something? We're not wealthy enough to just drop keep stars all over the place, but where to drop a Fortizar to to protect a new jump bridge? Or where, oh, we can use, here in this case, we can use this faction Fortizar that we still have in system. Yay, cool. Um, and things like that. So we thought, since everything said 200K, 200, uh, uh, 200 K meters, it needs to be from something else, that, um, sure, we'd be able to put it near this structure. Then when we went to go put it down, Turns out that it's 200K from the structure, but it has to be 1,000K 
from a TCU or an IHUB, and those happened to be on the grid with the faction Fortizars. So we couldn't find a spot anywhere around the faction Fortizar that was far enough away from the TCU and the IHUB to be able to put a gate. So we had to go put another Astro or, uh, Fortizar down. Yeah, this is something that we we realized after the fact that we should have made a lot clearer. Um, we didn't do a good job of communicating the fact that these fall, other than the fact that they can be anchored closer to other REPL structures, so they can be as close as 200 or 150 kilometers away from other REPL structures, they still have all the normal REPL structure range restrictions. So they have the same range restriction to a planet or to an IHUB or to a TCU that a uh, Citadel would have, for instance. Um, and because those are actually... They're also not communicated all that clearly uh, in game for the other upwell structures. Uh, we overlooked them in this case too. We looked at trying at making sure that we replicated all the the information that was on the like a citadel, for instance. Um, but unfortunately, because of those have actually been unclear on the citadels as well, and on the engineering complexes and refineries, um, they ended up being unclear on these two. Plus, the faction Fortizars were actually put down before they were a Fortizar, so they didn't have to follow all the normal rules uh, of an uphill structure at the time. They had their own set of rules, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So those all got grandfathered in uh, to their locations. Yeah. yeah. That, was, so, that was exciting. Go ahead. So the thing that surprised me the most about this transition was the fact that the BPOs ended up being way, way more expensive than I would have expected, and even more expected is expensive in comparison to other upwell structures. Um, I guess my two questions, my, my questions are, is this, uh, was there an intent behind this expense? Do you feel that this impacted the changeover period? And do you think that this impacts the fragility of these structures to have them also be worth so much? So yeah, when we decided on both the, um, uh, the actual build material cost and the BPO cost, which go a bit hand in hand. Um, we were looking at a couple of different options for how expensive to make them. Uh, we ended up deciding that uh, because these are structures, we wanted it to be fairly um, uh, rewarding to, to attack and destroy. Uh, we put their uh, costs higher than a, um, a medium structure. So lower than a uh, like an Asbel or a, um, a Fortizar, but uh, higher than, uh, than an Astrohus. Uh, and then we did the same with the, the BPOs as well. So they're, uh, they're higher than the BPO costs of the medium structures, lower than the BPO costs of the large structures. Uh, I think if we had had those costs lower, we definitely would have had more, um, more BPO sold, which probably would have uh, upped the, um, the number that are in there by now. Uh, but I think we're going to catch up pretty quickly. It'll just take a little bit longer to get that uh, universe saturation back. If you, if you haven't, the first time you go on a fleet op and go through a chain of these new jump gates is, uh, is an experience. You'll, re you'll remember it. You'll feel, it feels different from going through jump bridges. You can read it on paper where it says in the notes, okay, it doesn't give you jump fatigue. That doesn't have the same emotional impact of act as actually going through it and feeling what it's like to go through these gates. They feel more like a stargate and less like a jump bridge. It's very interesting. Yeah, that was absolutely core to the design is that they should be, they are 
Stargates in virtually every way. Uh, they have a, a fuel cost that Stargates don't have, but otherwise they uh, uh, have the same kind of jump ranges. They uh, accept most of the same types of ships. Uh, they uh, have the same cloak on the other side. The, the, the actual feeling, the effects are all the same, except with extra visual effects on the uh, that we've added to some of the other gates as well. And it really should just feel like you're building your own Stargate network. You are reaching the same level that the empires are at. There's another place where that feels like a Stargate and less like a jump bridge. And that is um, in the area of an incursion. Uh, it, it still functions in an incursion, un- unlike a jump bridge. It's crazy. Jump bridges still function out. You can jump out of an incursion into a non-incursion area in an re- old jump bridge always worked fine. You couldn't jump back in, but these stargates work both ways. It's crazy. It's, it's a, it's, it's quite an emotional impact. Uh, Apollo, do you have some? Um, yeah, Fozzie, I have a question for you. Um, with the jump gates, they're currently the way they are, but they were, when you guys released the notes about them, you said that five, they're going to remain five light years for now. And then you guys would investigate, you know, doing whatever you wanted to in the future. Do you guys currently believe that the five light years is good or did you want to, how are you looking at it now? Like, do you want to increase the range or do you want to decrease it at all? Or is five light years just what you want to I think at the moment we're happy with five light years for these structures. Um, it's possible that that may change as we watch how people use them more. Uh, again, it's they're very new at this point. Um, but uh, what I'd really like to do someday is introduce more variations of them. Uh, and I think that would be a cool opportunity to have some that maybe have some extra abilities, but then also have a shorter range, or maybe some that have longer range, maybe with some kind of restrictions on the number of them that could be placed per region or per uh, universe or something like that. Um, but that's all that's all future discussion rather than uh, short term. So like being able to build regional gates as opposed to just standard gates. Yeah, I think that would be really cool to explore. What about the surveillance structures that have been mentioned in the past? Are those are those uh, still potentially possible upcoming things? Uh, yes, they're absolutely potentially possible. Um, there's something that we'd definitely like to do. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff I think we can do with those, tying it to local chat, tying it to uh, detecting ships, cloaking uh, statistics, being able to watch uh, what ships have passed through your system overnight. Um, there's no, they're not currently, they're not, they don't have some kind of like announcement of when they might happen or if they're going to happen for sure. Um, just as the same ways we didn't have that for jump gates until uh, several months ago, and we didn't have that for refineries until the middle of uh, or until like FanFest last year. Um, we always try to make sure we're we're not over promising and that kind of stuff, and I especially try to make sure I'm not over promising. But yeah, I'd like to do those someday. My understanding is that the next structure that's kind of on the target is the propaganda structures. Is that possibly? Yes. I, again, I can't make any promises there, uh, but we've got some work that got done on the propaganda structures um, that uh, is at the moment held up, uh, and we'll see what ends up coming, whether those get brought back in or not. Um, if people have been watching some of the uh, uh, the hobo leaks, you'll have seen objects related to propaganda structures showing up there. We've done some prototyping. Uh, there's some cool stuff I think we could do with those for sure. Ooh, what's holding it up? Nothing that I can talk about, unfortunately. Okay. Hobo leaks. And then we'll, uh, I get a question from Omar. Um, uh, Omar, the, oh, I think I just killed my own question. I stepped on it. Wow. <laughs> That's Omar. Fine. That's yeah, I, I try to remember your damn name, Omar. 
that's why I forgot it. But go ahead. What's your it's question? Okay. No, it's, uh, this is a long shot, but like, I'm, I'm listening to Fozzie explain the uh, the mechanics about this 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 jump gate thing, and and this is like again, this is a really long shot. But I'm I'm wondering, is removing nullsec stargates an option in the distant future? Not in the short term, but in the distant future, that would be really cool. And actually, not even just nullsec. I would. We've talked about this before as a very, I think um, CSP Scarpia talked about it at FanFest like four years ago, something like that, five years ago maybe. Um, the the idea of doing some of, of trying to shift everything in EVE to be player built and player run. Uh, that's sort of the, that's the long term dream. Yeah, someday maybe that would be the dream, right? If we if we're wow. still working on EVE in seventy years, uh, that's what I would hope that we've done at that point. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, but the way I look at that kind of thing is it's like it's like using a north star for navigating. Uh, you may not ever actually reach. You're not going to get to the north star, but it gives you a good sense of direction of where you want to go. And we want to go towards more player control, more player built infrastructure. Uh, we want to be moving EVE towards a world that the players have shaped more than we've shaped it uh and that the end result of that might be all stargates being built by players um but at the very least the goal is to get closer to that and rather than further away yeah that sounds really cool That's, i'm glad um, to know that you have a 70 year plan yeah i think we can do 70 <laughs> uh, I, might, I might not be here i'll have to be cloned but uh let me let me ask you something dial back a little bit to hobo leaks you mentioned like people might see something in hobo leaks hobo leaks is uh, a board that compares the game as it is to some of the changes that are proposed on the test server. I wonder, Fozzie, if you guys see that as like spoilers or anything. I mean, how do you... Uh, I think you, it really depends on what players are looking for. If you like to be surprised by stuff, then you should definitely avoid Hobo Leaks. It, it is like reading to the reading a bit deeper in the book, but actually that's not even the best comparison because a lot of stuff that shows up on Hobo Leaks might never actually make it into the game. Well, that's, um, that was my question. Do you ever throw like... It's a way of peeking behind the... Yes, we absolutely do. I have done it on multiple times. I oh, have yeah. into our DB just to fuck with people who are reading the, <laughs> uh, uh, the diffs. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll it'll even be in things that are coming, so we'll know that something's coming, but then like details or the model or something like that will just be a complete troll. They've definitely done that. Two more yeah, of that. Yeah. There's still a um, there's still an item sitting in our database called wormhole stabilizer, and the only reason that exists is to troll people. I remember the the first one I ever remember was uh, the Dragoon when it was first before the model was announced. They had a different model on the Hobo Leaks that looked like um, a Star Destroyer, so that's what we mm. thought it was going to look like. Yeah, that was our placeholder model for ships for a while. It was the what every ship would look like if it didn't have another model. Uh, now they're just spheres, which is uh, boring, but uh, works better for the art. Well, in, in a game where you, you don't really have how do you put this rules? You just kind of put down mechanics, and then people make up their own ethics and rules and stuff like that. Does CCP are you immune from that sort of thing, or do you play that game too to put disse disseminate bad information in order to obscure good information as as a way of combating people leaking or getting you know information? I think that's a totally fair. I think at the end of the day, it's. Uh, I keep saying at the end of the day, <laughs> we're not going to be really tricking. We're not going to really tr be tricking people very much. Eve players are very smart. Uh, we do it as as jokes more than actually trying to do misdirection because uh, uh, nobody. The the collective, even players individually, are pretty smart. But with when all the thousands of them look at something, uh, it's pretty much impossible to trick them. 
Now, it, it is worth noting, though, that CCP has done increasingly clever maneuvering to make sure that like lore events or anything like that gets obscured until it's ready to be revealed. Um, most recently, they had the videos that was part of the Triglavian event that were on YouTube, and the the actual like URLs were not exposed until we received the item. So they've they've been trying to like offload certain pieces of information um, from the client, so that way we can't you know look in and see it. Yeah, with storyline stuff, uh, because of the fact that surprise is often such a big part of that, uh, yeah, they, there's a lot more effort put into trying to keep things uh, secret until they're ready to go. Well, one last thing on this, uh, and that is that I'm not necessarily for, for tricking people more often. I just feel like that's what has to be done if you're going to leave a landscape of no ethics. Uh, because CCP, you don't really make any judgments inside the game, it seems besides real life judgments that affect people in real life playing your product, which, you know, death threats and stuff like that, all that. Sure. But inside the game, you guys don't really have, I don't know, like a, a justice structure. Do you? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we are trying to, we're, we're, we basically try to separate real life and, and in game uh you're there's a lot of stuff you're not allowed to do that relates to real life stuff no harassment no doxing no uh real life threats things like that um but uh stealing from someone else in game uh declaring war on them invading their space uh these are the kind of things that in obviously in real life when if you were to like launch an invasion over uh some random slight that would be considered evil but it's a video game so that's just part of the game and you make your own justice in the mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, and this is where I have kind of a slight problem, you also have to balance that with new players and their acclimation to this place. In other words, newbies getting ganked and ripped off early on is, we all know, not good for the game. So do you let the community itself basically say, or the players that play this game basically say, we look down on that because you're killing the small fish. We want them to grow into big fish. Uh, or do you create, as far as your like uh, the way you develop the game, do you create ways of protecting them from from experiencing such a bad experience that they leave the game before they ever get to really play it? Yeah, you try to do both. I think um, the the really core thing that we can do is try to make sure pe- that everything is understandable for people. Uh, if you die and you don't know why you died, you don't know what you could have done to avoid it. You don't know um, what actions you should take in the future uh that's just really frustrating we want to try to avoid that as much as possible as whenever we can we want people to understand what's going on even if they don't necessarily understand which choice is going to be the best choice they should know the kind of choices that are available to them uh and that is that's something that um it can be a challenge for really new players because they're just learning the mechanic, but uh, is a challenge for older players as well. Uh, when we see people running into issues with uh, systems like the war system, it's actually not even really new new players. It's not people in their first couple of months usually that are um, being affected by it. It's often people that have been playing for years, uh, but the game hasn't communicated very well to them what the systems involved are and what they can do to increase or decrease their risk. Well, let's talk about the war deck system. That seems to be one of the ones that people complain about a lot. You guys are changing that this month after, what, years and years of deliberating on how to change it. 
Yeah, so there's going to be a number of changes over the next while. Uh, the first set of them is coming in December. Uh, this is a system that was last significantly changed in 2012, uh, war, the war declaration system. Um, and the change we're making in December is a pretty simple one. Uh, we've talked a bit about it before at Vegas and Eve Down Under. Uh, we're going to be uh, basically saying that if you have a structure in space, any type of structure, anywhere in space, you are eligible to, to be involved in the war system, both to declare wars and to have wars declared against you. And if you don't have a structure in space, then you're out of the system. Um, it's going to be sort of a simple switch. Uh, it'll just tell you when you're deploying the first structure, by the way, this gets you eligible for the war system. Uh, and uh, that will be something that makes sure that there's always... Um, some sort of buy-in uh, to be involved in the system, even if it's a very small buy-in in a lot of cases. Now, if if they if they do declare war, and you go over and blow up all of their structures or their only structure, does that end the war? It'll Is put there- the war into the twenty-four hour cooldown. Yeah. So yeah, that means that a war can end early um, if the. Uh, uh, if the last structure is gone for one side, it'll go into that 24-hour cooldown, the same 24-hour cooldown that it enters if a bill hasn't been paid. Uh, and it gives everyone the notification, lets them know war is going to end in 24 hours, and then it finishes this fight. If they go ninja up another structure at that point real quick, uh, will that preserve their war? And once you've hit the actual war cooldown period, then that war will end, but a new war can start after that. So when you say any structure, I, I, I might have missed this. Does that include customs offices? Yes, it includes customs offices. It includes starbase control towers. It includes all up-all structures. It includes soft structures. The interesting thing I, I think out of this is that it creates the opportunity for powerful entities to sponsor high-sec organizations by having structures in HiSec and choosing which organizations they allow to operate within them. So that way, HiSec entities don't have to have structures of their own, uh, but yet there's like a symbiotic relationship between a HiSec entity and a more powerful low-sec or null-sec entity. Yeah, yeah, it'll apply to the entire alliance if you have one structure owned by any corp anywhere in the alliance, and that alliance will be eligible for the Wardex system. That actually reminds me, because Caneros earlier mentioned that people are dropping keep stars without telling anybody, and you're saying that a single structure will like trigger this ability to be war decked. Do you have any concern about spies dropping an astrohus in Vale of the Silent or, or, or in solitude somewhere where like you can't even find it in your own alliance um, and exposing your alliance to war decks when you didn't want it to be? Uh, that will be an option. They'll be burning the spy to do it if they do that. Um, the uh, This is a first relatively simple uh, iteration on the system. Um, so there will definitely be some cases where people can, um, can both do things like... Um, deploy these kind of structures it also the fact that it's going to include all layers of space will mean that um you'll be if you've got like a poco in wormhole space then you'll be eligible for the wardex system uh the our basic assumption for the this first iteration is that if you've got if you're living out in null sec or if you've got a uh, um, structure in a wormhole or something you're an advanced enough corporation you probably are familiar with what the wardex system is um there's going to be some exceptions to that but uh Basically, we're trying to keep this this first iteration as simple as possible. So, my question would be to you then: Is what's going to really change as far as as far as the the entities right now that are just war decking everybody when they can just go and stuff a poco somewhere 
and that's it. I, I understand this is the first the first of many changes you guys are going to do, but it's like I can just see like you know pirate or um, or any of the or Wardek uh, groups in Isaac going to the most random random spot in, in Eve and dropping a structure, and then yep. there you are. So for this iteration, uh, we're not as focused on the structures that the aggressors have to put down. Um, we're forcing them to have a structure in space to launch a war, mostly just for consistency with requiring a structure to be attacked as well. Um, the core thing is that it provides a way for a, a corporation or alliance to choose to opt out of the war system. So that they have, like we said, uh, it's really important to make sure that you know what you can do differently. Uh, you know that you had a choice, uh, and in this case, it's providing you that choice of being a relatively simple corp that doesn't have any assets in space or a corp that does have assets in space. Understood. Thank you. So I spent my CCP dev years um, in EVE University. So I, one of the things I do is I filter, I'll read something about Wordex and I'll filter it through the EVE University experience. And I could see, for example, they could move all their structures into a different um, holding alliance of some sort and, and make themselves become invulnerable to Wordex. Uh, they'd still be vulnerable to suicide ganking, like everyone knows. The, welcome to Eve. But, uh, you, you know, I, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, you're always vulnerable when you're undocked in Eve to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, the idea is to try to give people a bit more feeling of control over that vulnerability. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll see how it goes. This is a first iteration. Uh, we'll be watching closely at how how people uh, like it, how they react to it, uh, what the feedback. How how hot is the volume on this? Are you getting a lot of feedback? Uh, like just totally on the on the Wardex system as a whole, or on yeah. this particular. I mean, it's an area of the game that uh, is always relatively heavily discussed. Um, I wouldn't ever say it's near the top of the areas of feedback, but uh, but it's it's just because of the fact that it's a, a area of the game that uh, has existed for a very long time. There's there's always a lot of discussion. It means there's a lot of discussion going back that we can look at too. Yeah, well, it just seems like all the CSM members were saying this is, uh, you know, whether they were null sec or low sec or high sec, they were all saying, this is something that I want to run on as far as a, a, a campaign promise to, to bring. I'm wondering if that translates to now that you've made a decision, you're going to move in that direction. If that has translated to a lot of people momentum reaching out to you saying yes or no, this is a good idea. Um, we definitely have seen some, um, probably a bit, not quite as much as around things like the navigation structures. Um, but, uh, but still, yeah, a good amount of a good, yeah, this is a good question that got posted just now to us. You can currently flip a POCO to any corporation like that. Super easy. You don't even have to be on grid with it. You could just be in the system. Um, is this a way to, exploit the uh, and make the other corporation now suddenly vulnerable to a war deck? Will that work? Uh, it will not work because we're adding one other change. That's a very good question. That's actually one of the things that we were, we thought up in our brainstorming session pretty early on when we came when we were talking about this potential option, uh, this way of um, or this type of change to make in December. Um, what's going to happen in December is that every corp will have a checkbox that can be set by their directors or CEO. It works just like the corp friendly fire checkbox, where you turn it on and off, and it decides whether or not you can receive structures in a structure transfer or not. So it'll be set by a 
is set off by default. A structure is free, or a corp is free to leave that checkbox on and accept structures freely, or they can leave it off. And then if they ever want to accept the structure, just have a director check it on, receive the structure, and then check it off again. Oh, that's interesting. So it's kind of like a refuse dual uh, checkbox. Yeah, yeah, like refuse dual, refuse convo. Basically the same idea. It uh, will apply instantly and it'll be controllable by the uh, director. Or Very elegant. And it will, uh, by default, be set to safety so that it'll be off, in other words, that you cannot yes. receive the structure? Okay. By default, it'll it'll every corp will be set on patch day to not receive any uh, structure transfers. Uh, and if you try to transfer a structure to them, it'll give you a message that says this corp has uh, set it off for now and people can contact them and get them to turn it on. Hmm. Well, uh, so yeah, well, five years of brainstorming will get you, <laughs> uh, you got pretty good coverage on some of the things that you expect to happen. What do you expect to happen one, uh, here in December when you, uh, initiate the first part of war deck mechanic changes? Uh, that's a good question. I expect that we would see, uh, the total volume of war declarations go down a bit, uh, because a lot of them right now are to relatively small groups, often small groups of relatively experienced players, but still relatively small groups. Um, uh, the war decks in general will probably shift towards bigger organizations that have, uh, structures. And uh, we'll see some groups, uh, like Carnaro said, shift structures into, uh, holding organizations, then use ACLs to allow access. That, of course, then means, though, that you can war deck that group in order to destroy the structure. Uh, and as we saw this last week, sometimes uh, when you have a an alt group holding onto your structures in high sec, it can be tough to war deck the right people with the right groups to make sure you can defend it. Uh, so yeah, I think it, we're going to see a lot of those player behavior um, changes as people figure out the new system. It'll probably take a couple of months before they really settle down and, and have it all figured out. But by then, we'll have some some other changes ready to go, I think. Are you happy with like the way Eve is right now as far as uh, people being drawn to um, big empires as opposed to uh, kind of finding their own little cultural identity? I think it's it's always the core thing is to allow people to have a choice uh, that if somebody wants to operate as their own group they can um, but then there's always benefits of being a part of a big group as well. Uh, we've worked really hard to try to encourage big groups to want to have more people and to want to recruit, um, partly because that uh, makes sure that there's always a big welcoming uh, set of organizations for new players to join, uh, and that's I think been very successful. Uh, we've been seeing a lot more people living in Nullsec. Um, since the uh, uh, the soft changes a couple of years back, uh, and that was one of the core goals: is to try to make sure that people can can be brought out and can live there if they want to. That everyone who wants to live in Nullsec, if you play Eve and you decide you want to live in Nullsec, you can. If you play Eve and you decide you want to live in High Sec, you can. In Low Sec, you can. In Wormholes, you can. Uh, we don't want anyone to feel like a, an area of space is out of reach for them. Well, that's, that's uh, go ahead. That being said, I, I think that this word exchange is uh, a, a huge step in that direction because what this does is it allows smaller scale groups to be able to grow and thrive um, without being suppressed by larger, more aggressive, uh, angry groups. So, um, you know, the thing that I Why think about angry? with this, what, because I don't know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, so, the, the thing that I see as being the biggest impact of this is that I expect to see the MPC corpse basically empty out. 
um, because there's no real good reason to remain in an NPC corp anymore um, and pay that extra taxes when you can just create your own corp. And the practical upshot of that is that it's going to cause players to create a more established identity and hopefully invest a little bit more. You know, you make your character kind of before you understand the way the whole game goes. You have to choose your race before you even know what races are. But your corp, you choose, knowing what what is a little bit more about the game and all that stuff. And so I think that the availability of this additional um, identity to kind of rally behind without it immediately getting crushed by Pirate or one of those other organizations will do quite a bit to go in that direction. And, and then furthermore, I see that the next step would be that some of these old uh, organizations, once they cultivate, once they get like 10 or 12 functional people and are able to do stuff, maybe as an organization, they will move into null, uh, you know, null organizations or low sec organizations. So you'll see more corpse moving between alliances instead of individuals. Well, and that was kind of where my question was going is that the, uh, what pressures people to stay together in smaller groups to do their own thing versus joining a bigger group for uh, safety and security. One of the things that Sadus, uh, who's in the audience there, said, he's from Goon Swarm, um, was, let's see if I can find it, uh, just make the war deck cost more the further you are away from the asset. And that got me thinking about how Really, in history, if you're looking at a reflection of um, Eve as a reflection of um, real life, in history, you have empires don't get attacked in the centers because there's no wormholes, right? You have to attack the boundaries and work in. And I've been thinking a lot about that, uh, looking at other sci-fi games and how there is kind of a place that civilization is a lot more secure near the center. And then the frontier is the dangerous part. Uh, but in EVE, it just seems like you can really attack just about anywhere at any time, maybe because of the travel and stuff. Or because Imagine. you can bring, you know, titans and drop them on a capital system without, you know... I, I was about to risk, say, but. yeah, we don't have magically teleporting super tanks in real life. But that kind of... Um, maybe that's just an aesthetic when you think about the game. I spend a great deal of time thinking about EVE Online. Um, I know that, Fozzy, your development is about getting people to play the game. And, and so I wonder, like, if these ideas are just more... Uh, that's, just, that's just something that you think about in your head. The reality is people need to play the game to have fun. Yeah, it's always... It's tricky. We've, this is a, the idea that there should be um, more distinctness between different areas of space for attacking it for like the stuff that's closer the stuff that's further away um keeps coming up and i think there's a lot a lot to recommend about it but then yeah it does run headlong into uh, movement speed and how frustrating it can be if movement speed gets up much higher when you think about it um eve is more like a a world that only takes a couple hours at most to walk from one end to the other and where you can uh, get across even faster with a bike um that a world that small, uh, you you wouldn't really see the same kind of uh, of geographical incentives and in, uh, uh, borders and such. Uh, I think it would be cool to to add more. I think there's some great ideas that have uh, been discussed over the years about putting uh, borders uh, more directly into some systems where there is a bit more control over the incentives of fighting, like in factional warfare. Um, I think borders would be a really cool addition there uh, per perhaps um, putting spawning more um, uh, 
uh, more sites and uh, giving better LP rewards in areas along borders and trying to structure things that way. Um, but uh, I don't think it's something that we can necessarily apply to all of you. It would have to be into specific uh, gameplay systems. Yeah. The well, uh, uh, the, I mean, the crux of that question is a much bigger question, and is how, how do you develop the game for playability and fun? Um, while at the same time not sacrificing the sci-fi uh, thinking about the game, the daydreaming about the game, and how it's how it is a virtual world and how it exists and how it's supposed to be a reflection of real. Yeah, it's a tough balance, and it's a similar challenge to trying to figure out how hard to make the sci-fi as well, how how realistic to make things or how to make them. The Eve. The actual physics is more like a submarine simulator than a, a space simulator. Uh, but that was chosen because that is actually, it's more intuitively understandable to people. And so we sacrificed, or the original CCP team sacrificed uh, some realism uh, to get more accessibility. Yeah. like And then and then Max Singularity came around and, and made it all realistic. Yeah, yeah. And then you, you, you can hand, that's the great thing about sci-fi, right? You can hand wave anything. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a resistance to it. They they say, "Oh, that's just magical. You can't do that." Like people want to believe in the universe's integrity. They uh, like, and you really came close to um, violating that. Well, you didn't because people now accept it with the jumpy uh, destroyers, right? But you managed to explain those well enough that now people adopt them, and they like the playability. Of it. Yeah, the gameplay is good, and it, I mean. The the um, micro jump field generators are nowhere near the most the most uh, incongruent uh, yeah elements of our universe. Uh, there's like when you think about it, think about um, uh, abyssal dead space. About that say. is something that we we had like there's a lot of new sci-fi that got invented for that. But it's sci-fi, right? So any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and uh, you just have a lot of uh, sufficiently advanced technology. I, I have a suspicion that in a few years we're going to consider the abyssal dread, uh, dead space rollout to be the 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 jumping the shark moment when it came to the lore, but we'll see. You guys are clever. Like again, nothing in my mind. There's nothing that's um, less that's more like brings me out of the universe more when it comes to the like uh, the, the hard sci-fi setting than drag. Than the fact that that original decision all the way back to the beginning. But I think it's it's definitely a better video game because of it. Having your ship slow down when you stop the engines uh, <laughs> is something that is just is so inconsistent. And we have a, a we have a sci-fi explanation for it with the drag from the warp engines and all this. But um, yeah, it, you, you will accept. Um, it, you see this with with the other forms of media too, right? With books and television and movies, people will accept almost any amount of inconsistency as long as the story is built well around it. Um, it's not about trying to avoid plot holes. It's about making sure that your story is engaging enough, your world is engaging enough, that people will just ignore all the plot holes. Well, do you remember when we used to warp to a gate? You would hear what sounded like wind uh, as you're arriving at the gate, like you were jumping out of a... Oh, yeah, but then well, I mean, the sound in general is obviously not real too, right? Because uh, there wouldn't be sound carrying. So, like again, we hand wave that as... Your computer generates simulated sounds. The there's like camera drones that are that move at infinite speed around your ship to allow you to change camera angles. Yeah, like it, yeah. all of that is needed to make the games um, the game systems work. But right. uh, so none for, of it works physically. 
So all the sound that you're hearing in the game is manufactured by your ship or your pod. I, I don't know which. Yeah, correct. But I, lo- I, I love the way you explain that. And that, to me, draws me closer to EVE as a, a universe that is integral. Like it has some kind of uh, consistency. Yeah, think- like the you're basically playing a video game inside of a like a gooey uh like gaming rig chair uh in a pod uh, and you everything is there's a lot of simulated stuff there's a lot of um uh augmented reality elements your whole ui is just augmented reality over right. the camera feed from camera drone how how do you guys explain uh multiple characters i don't mean alts but multiple characters because i have an idea uh well, oh, they, they've explained it before. Oh. It was, You're talking well, about multiple characters, multiple... like Multiple mains, not just alts. We've done a couple of different things. I don't actually know what is officially canon. I don't know. We, there was one thing we created for one of the, um, uh, the comic books, the um, True Stories comic book. That, and I don't know if this is officially canon, so don't quote me on this. But in the, that comic book, we suggested that people hop between... Uh, bodies and, and not just clones, but also entirely different bodies as well, and take different identities. Yes, yes. Go ahead, Ash. Yeah, in that in that story, they took the fact that uh, the the director in um, Bob had his alt in Goonsform. So in this in the storytelling of it, um, it was the same guy who kind of had two identities that he used to cover up, which is somewhat consistent with um, other pieces of the lore where people will use clones either as throwaways or as covers. We actually just had a guy who used uh, the clone bank during Jamil, not Jamil, but uh, the latest, um, uh, not the coronation ceremony, but the anniversary of it, uh, I believe. There is an assassin who snuck in and killed somebody and then killed themselves and got away. And nobody really knows who they are. We only know who their cover was. That was in one of, I think that was in uh, Sine Wave Omega. Well, let me just bring this, uh, because it's kind of an obscure topic, but the reason that I'm asking and interested in it, other people are too, is... Uh, when you play a game, you kind of inject your consciousness into it to play it. Like I'm this character. You role play very lightly uh, when you suspend reality to play a game, and this is a big part of Eve Online. The problem is you're like, well, I need to actually have two characters so I can do this thing, and now I need three characters to do the thing, and so you have to separate yourself from bonding with that one character that you started with. And it's funny, it's kind of like a first child for many Eve players, that, that that one character they started with is like their first child, but they have other children. So I wonder, like, uh, you know, uh, and so the, what CCP does is they create a lore that allows for you to do that kind of mental gymnastics to keep you immersed in the game. At the same time, you have to deal with the practicality of the game. It takes multiple accounts to do certain it's worse if you're a CCP employee or you go to work for CCP because then they take away your character and put uh, for a while and and make you make all new ones. It's terrible. This also um, changed dramatically when it came to skill injectors because it used to be that a lot of people, if you wanted to jump ahead in power, you had to buy somebody else's character, which meant you were buying somebody else's identity. Uh, The best example of that was Johnny Pugh, 
who had Sir Livingston for years. And then the day that uh, Skill Injectors came out, he melted down Sir Livingston and put it into Johnny Pugh because that was his identity. So yeah, this this pursuit of identity in Eve is definitely, um, it's something that people have been working on for a long time and has gotten better. Well, yeah, I was I was never a character buying person myself, uh, but I knew lots of people who they, their in game names just kept changing because they were flipping characters and upgrading, and <laughs> uh, you'd have to keep remembering all their old names. Uh, and um, yeah, plenty of people have had names that they weren't really happy with because of that. That they didn't, uh, they just it was the character they bought. Actually, um, uh, CCP rise is a, a good example of that, where his, his most famous, uh, Eve character kill two is one that he bought. Uh, and so he never chose that name. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and the, I think bleasy one, two, three in chat says something he says like, ha ha ha, I created my own story. And that's a powerful statement. Creating your own identity in this game, I think is a, is a big part of the attraction of investment into that character. So it's like you bought, um, you know, somebody else's suit and you're in it when you buy characters. And some people don't care about that because they really just want to play the game at a high potential. But yeah. yeah, so everyone can choose how much they want to care about that. They can choose whether they want to uh, to just view themselves as themselves. So like you, you can when people talk about Eve, even people that aren't really role-playing or don't think they're role-playing Eve, they really are uh, to a certain extent. You'll, you, you don't say, I play a mercenary in Eve. You say, I am a mercenary in Eve. You don't say, I, 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 you, you take that role, even if it's not the character taking the role, it's you taking the role. And that is honestly one of the things that has always I've always loved about Eve and its lore um, once I started getting into it. And this goes back to um, kind of the idea of of the other changes and whatnot, it, we are the bad guys of the universe, right? We are the unthinking or we are the uncaring immortal space gods that have gotten way out of control um, and are a giant threat to the empires, barely controlled by Concord. And um, because of that, what ends up happening is that you are role playing as long as you are playing the game. And it doesn't matter how you decide to play. That is your role playing within the universe. So if you're playing it just like it's a video game, then guess what? You're an immortal space god who now just treats things like a video game because you're immortal. And that's, but that's like, that's the canon. That's the way it's it's supposed to work. And and so I, I say this all the time in in other video games. Like if I want to be a paladin or if I want to be the main tank or whatever, I just choose that that thing and then I gain those abilities and that's what I do. In Eve, you can be all kinds of different roles, but you actually have to do it, right? You can be, a, you know, you don't just get to be a military commander because you selected that at character creation. You have to actually learn to be a good military commander. You can be a politician, but you have to actually get voted in. And uh, I think that that's one of the things that makes Eve incredibly powerful. Yeah, I've always, I was hoping that we would add a, um, a counter in the activity tracker for a number of civilians you have. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Ships, ships crew. And so every time you lose a ship, every time you blow up an NPC, uh, every time you put down a new facility in PI that crushed a little like tap, all of those, it would just rack up the numbers. You devs are ruthless. You want to track all the mortal bodies that are crushed under the weight of these uh, hyperhuman uh, capsuleers. 
you think it's bad, start reading some of the Chronicles. Yeah, man. All, everyone playing this video game, we're the bad guys from uh, most sci-fi movies. The like rich, out of touch uh, folks that uh, do whatever they want. Yeah, we are the Cylons. We are the greatest threat to humanity. Well, and that's something that it seems like you have that in common with Falcon and everybody else. You want the game to be harder. You want the game to be more ruthless and brutal. Actually, that must come from the very top, Hilmar and stuff. Yeah, Vikings were far. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's good for people to be able to choose how much they want to engage with the storyline. But the storyline of Eve, the this in-universe uh, story, is is pretty bleak. Uh, there's there's some dark elements. It's it's very heavily influenced. Like the original uh, aesthetic of Eve, the original story of Eve are very heavily influenced by uh, cyberpunk and uh, sci-fi noir movies and concepts like that. Um, and so it is really like this is this is Blade Runner, and we're those folks in the off-world colony, like ruling the off-world colonies that you never get to see because every Everyone on the planet uh, is living a terrible life in the gutter. Does that make it harder to get a movie deal or a TV deal that it's so dark? I'm not sure. That's that's an area that uh, that I don't really deal with. There's some dark stuff out there. Uh, yeah, there's some dark stuff on yeah. TV. Yeah, I think it's uh, and there's room for a lot of different narratives. Uh, and I think I'm so glad you said uh, Blade Runner esque. And if you look at Eve Chronicles, they're bleak, dystopic, uh, if that's a word, or dystopia. Um, and that's really kind of what, uh, I want to move talking in stations towards, like we're, we're going to redo all our artwork and design and everything. And, you know, if we start putting out news, uh, as well, then that I want it to take on an in-game feel of, uh, not necessarily old Eve, but definitely, and not a retro thing, but, uh, a Blade Runner f- space noir kind of vibe. Uh, so we've been testing out. Cyberpunkish or... Uh, yeah, cyberpunk is a little um, subculture-ish, but I, I would I want dark corners in smoky cantina kind of uh, vibe to the whole talking and stations uh, thing. And that's just you know I know it's just a marketing thing, but I really feel like we're a little bit too removed from the actual game, the game itself and stuff. So, so since uh, we're really. so far off the script that we can barely see it. <laughs> uh, this actually reminds me of in uh, Eve's source, there is actually the description of one of the cities. It's a Caldari city called Arcturio, I think is the way it's pronounced. But um, it's it's the second largest city on, I believe, Caldari Prime, not New Caldari Prime. I can never remember. But uh, the way that they describe the city is so interesting because it's like it's got these giant skyscrapers. So it's all like very drudgy and, you know, super modern kind of feel to it. But at the same time, like the cl- the it's so cold it's always snowing and so in order to make it so that the uh the city doesn't freeze they have these nets above the city that are electrified that melts the snow so the practical effect is is that it's basically always dreary and always dripping water down into the city so it's just got this super blade runner vibe to it well that's eve i mean if you read the books and stuff that's a lot of that is uh it's something that you know, I think it refreshes you to connect with it. I, when I started um, reading literature, or reading Eon Magazine or anything, like there's something special about EVE Online, which is the reason we're here. And we, we can spend our time any way we want, but we keep coming back to this. And I think a lot of that has to do with all the trappings and the flavoring that EVE allows. And then there's the behavior under that that actually happens. I mean, sneaking around and really damaging an opponent is, is, is pretty compelling gameplay. 
well, we're due for another novel. I think that would be cool. I, I'd love to see us um, do a um, uh, a compilation uh, book, publish some of the uh, the player uh, story stuff. That would be really awesome. Like the the fiction that uh, Eve players have written. Yeah. Which reminds me, Pod and Planet just, I think, concluded their competition. For those of you who aren't aware, there is a, I think, annual competition called Pod and Planet where people write uh, their own lore or their own stories in Eve. And they are really high quality. And I think even last year, the Eve Reader, um, who is another podcast, which everyone should check out, because if you like the Chronicles, but you don't want to read them, Eve Reader reads them for you. And he does a great job with that. At any rate, he also did... Uh, either last year or the year before that's Pod and Planet winners as well. Uh, we Last question, I guess, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, the We don't often get to, I guess, get informal. Normally when we're talking to Fozzie, we're talking about um, mechanics and how the mechanics can affect people so they can predict how to adapt. And that's really what people are looking for when you come on a show and stuff. But I think what really is sad is that you don't get a chance to kind of express what we're talking about now, which is the game itself, the uh, an anthropological look at how people play the game uh, and stuff like that. So I make no apologies for uh, using your time to talk about some of this other stuff that's, I guess, the soft part of uh, EVE Online. Um, yeah, I think it's just a lot of fun to talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, what? The, yeah. the EVE universe is just like, it's, it's a really cool uh, world that's been crafted both by devs and players and People can approach it from a bunch of different ways. I see somebody mentioning in chat, who was it here? Uh, Bargos talking about tying the universe of uh, Eve to that of the Expanse at some point. Uh, if anyone's not familiar with the story of how the Expanse came to be, it actually started out as the, uh, or it was fleshed out as the um, potential storyline for an MMO that never got made. So it was actually intended as the space the uh, the background story for a space MMO that was uh, partially inspired by by Eve. Yeah, uh, I just read that the other day that Eve inspired uh, uh, the Expanse. So I kind of thought, oh yeah. And I think if you've seen Altered Carbon, there's a lot of concepts in Altered Carbon that uh, are very very similar to Eve. On yeah, the yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that kind of post-humanist uh, discussion in Altered Carbon that is very Eve-like. Yeah. Uh, right. So this is my last question. It's a self-serving one. Uh, what does, what do you guys look at when you look out at the player base and a lot of the chatter and stuff, how much of it would you say when you're looking from your perspective is really like, um, I don't know, Reddit, INN, NER talking in stations, how much of it is like media driven as opposed to how much you're looking at forums? Uh, I know you look at it all, but Really, when you're getting your narrative or your temperature, like what? Do you, how much of it is uh, media related? You try to combine things, uh, not necessarily rely too much on any one source. We have one of the best tools we have for gauging the temperature of the community is some of you guys have probably received these, but we send out regular uh, surveys to a random selection of you players uh, and just ask them questions about how you're feeling about the game. Um, and those we get a weekly report and we just get every single week a new update um so that kind of thing is really great as a way of especially reaching the people that might be too shy to talk on the forums or on reddit or things like that um but yeah we also are looking at uh, the uh, stuff people are writing online 
uh, forums, Reddit, uh, the the Eve News sites, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're also looking at uh, feedback the CSM passes us. They're talking to people, and uh, they can pass along some really great information. So you, you try to keep that as, as spread out as possible. I think try to uh, get a, a really wide view. But I can imagine you don't have all the time in the world, right? You got your own lives to live. You've got this job that you you have to design uh, a video game, and you have to talk amongst each other. And then how how much time do you spend looking at what's going on out? Um, I I maybe it varies a bit depending on how busy I am. Um, I tend to not put a ton of time into uh, reading through stuff outside of the forums, partly because I can now count on. Uh, we, we do a pretty good job of sharing stuff within the company. So if anyone is reading something and sees something interesting, they'll pass it along. Uh, and so most of the time, if I'm seeing something from Reddit nowadays, it's because somebody else at the company passed it along to me because I just don't have enough time to be keeping an eye on it all the time. Um, but that's it's great. It means that you don't have to. Because like, those kind of things can be a huge time sink if you let them. Oh, yeah. So reading between the lines, Fozzie doesn't read Reddit. Um, I'm <laughs> no, just kidding, but it does percolate up to you uh, because it gets into the the conversation inside the company and stuff. But um, and that totally makes sense. And I wonder though, the personalities of you guys is really the stuff that's shareable is the stuff that you guys will see, right? Like the something that's funny, something that's extraordinary, something that's uh, compelling. Yeah, we'll see we'll get all kinds of stuff. Yeah, interesting stories people are telling, um, funny threads, uh, interesting ideas that have been suggested and passed up. Um, you see a lot of that kind of stuff get passed around the company. Uh, people send uh, clips from uh, live streams uh, of people trying out Eve or doing something cool and Eve. Uh, those kind of things get shared pretty widely because there's a lot of people working at CCP that all really love to uh, to hear about what people are enjoying in the game, to see people enjoying the game. It really it it helps make it more than just a normal job when you're seeing people having fun. Right, right. That must be a, a feedback mechanism for you guys to like say, yeah, we're we're doing something fun, something worthwhile. Uh, All right. Now that we're wrapping up, I also want to say because we're getting a lot of comments and questions in the chat group, I, I just want to clarify that CCP Fozzy is not the executive producer of Eve Online. He doesn't deal with things outside of his uh, lane, and he's—I don't even think you're the most senior within your department, are you? Uh, no, I'm not the most senior. I'm one of our senior designers. Right. Got, so, but, um, but a lot like of four senior designers. A lot of things get attributed to Fozzie, or at least a lot of questions get levied onto Fozzie that I think is completely not his lane. So, if we've if if questions didn't get asked, it's because there's probably other people in CCP that would be better to ask these questions, especially involving like MPE and stuff like. That. Yeah, I mean, it, there's never any harm in in asking if. I'll, like whenever you ask one of us a question, we don't know the answer to, or we're not the best people to answer. We'll just let you know. Um, the uh, but yeah, there is uh, different people working on different areas of the game at any one time, uh, and sometimes we can answer things uh, that are a bit outside of what we're working on. But sometimes, we yeah. But you're you're considered one of the more influential uh, correspondent points for. I yeah, so say the community, but, but yeah, one of the things that you, you, uh, I think uh, amplifies that is that uh, different 
people working at CCP will have different comfort levels with coming on to a, a show like this, to going to events and talking to players, um, to being basically public facing. And uh, that's not a core part of the job. It's not something, I mean, it's, it's something I really enjoy, but it's not something that you get hired, they look at when they're hiring, right? So we don't require all of our designers to, to be interested in that kind of thing. It's something that the community folks, it's part of their job, but um, different designers will have different comfort levels with that. And because of the fact that I happen to be one of the people that uh, shows up uh, at these things a bit more often, it's easy for people to assume that I have more uh, a more senior position than I do sometimes. Yeah, because you're comfortable talking with uh, players and handling their questions and, and somebody who may be doing the same thing a counterpart of yours is a lot less comfortable with that. And so we never hear about who they are. Um, and by the way, how, how has the experience been? Have, has, have the players burned you? Are you, are you okay? Are you okay? <laughs> uh, I knew, I knew I what I was getting into before I started. Blink twice. <laughs> I, I knew the risks. Is there a stress ball you're totally squeezing under your desk right now? Like <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. I'm going to say that I rem I remember distinctly CCP Fozzie's first blog when he first like like when he introduced himself as CCP Fozzie. And well, because we knew him from Alliance complaint. tournaments before he became a, a a CCP dev, so we all knew about him before he became an actual dev. Right, but but the very first dev blog, he he's like, "Hi, I'm CCP Fozzie. I'm going to destroy Technetium," and like that's how it started. So he he has always been. Uh, out there putting his face on, on let's say, controversial feet. And he did, right? Yeah. He broke up OTEC with uh, Alchemy, right? Yep, with, with Alchemy and so then Moon distribution changes. Yep. All right. And what is, uh, this is the last question. I'm sorry. We have Fozzie and I love talking to him. I'm just doing it in front of you guys. But what's your favorite stuff that you've actually worked on and, uh, you know, that you're the happiest went into the game? Oof, that's a good question, and it's it's always hard to even like remember back further than a few months at any given time. Uh, so it's like I have a bias towards more recent things. Um, the uh, the refineries, I think, I'm I'm really happy with how those turned out. Uh, the the active moon mining system, uh, I think the, the the system works uh, quite well. It's gotten a lot of a lot of use, um, a lot of uh, good stories that come out of it, and it obviously looks great and feels great to use. Uh, that's definitely uh, up there. Things like, I don't know, I've worked on a lot of things over the years. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, going back to like the, the early, early days right after I started, um, some of the balance work, I don't do as much balance work anymore. That's mostly moved on over to other people now, but uh, that was a lot of fun to work on, um, especially in the, the, uh, those earlier rounds. Uh, like in Retribution, um, also in Retribution, some of the uh, FW changes there, those were really fun to work on all the way back in 2012. Yeah, you really resurrected cruisers uh, dramatically, uh, T1 cruisers. The Retribution changes were such a big change when it came to just how, like the, the survivability or the viability of small gang work. Right. All right. Uh, by the way, they don't have Thanksgiving in Iceland, do they? Uh, it's not, not a really a big thing. Some people do, uh, have a little celebration, uh, this weekend. We like, we've got enough Americans at the office that we had, uh, turkey at, for lunch at, uh, at the office on Thursday. Um, so yeah, not, not really too much. I'm as a, uh, a Canadian American dual citizen, I get two Thanksgivings a year. So that works out really well. <laughs> 
That's awesome. And you're happy there in Iceland? Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed her. One thing I don't enjoy quite as much is that it's like 6.40 and the sun has been down now for like an hour. Oh, yeah. It's the end of November in Iceland. It's already really, really dark. Uh, the very, very short day. Can you see the northern lights from up there? Uh, quite often. Um, you see it. Uh, they're more common in the a bit deeper into the winter. So like December and January and February is when you get them the most. Uh, but yeah, they're they're definitely getting um, more common uh, now. And yeah, they're. I, I don't know. Maybe during peak season, there's nor- strong northern lights a couple of times a week, but. Uh, it needs to be a clear night to see them. So a combination of strong northern lights and not too cloudy happens maybe uh, one and a half times a week, something like that on average. Well, you can you can now see them in EVE Online, right? You guys are putting them in the game soon. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be a fun little touch. That's one of those things that some of the art guys have been playing around with for a while and they're partly in their spare time and then uh, got put into full development after a while. And uh, it's going to be a fun little addition for well, Ash and I were talking that it might be something that's kind of rare to see. Is that, do we know the frequency? I actually don't know the frequency. The art guys do know, but uh, I, I haven't seen the numbers for it. Um, I know it's it's not going to be in like an everyday thing, and it's only be on some types of planets. Um, but uh, there'll be more. I think the art guys will probably put something out in relation to this contest that's starting that might give people some hints of how common they are. This isn't Children of the Light Mark II, then. No, no. I, I, someday I want to change Children of the Light to uh, Children of Light to make it a bit more uh, consistently triggerable. The the issue is that it's it's the the thing to do to trigger Children of Light is actually really easy, uh, but then there's both a delay and a random element, and so you oh. might not know that you've done it. Um, so, so the. Sorry, the original I, Children of Light in practice is um, is built. I think the, the guys that built it meant it to feel like it's fully random, which it kind of does feel like right now, even though it's not f- like there is a player activity needed to trigger. Wait, is that a clue? Is a uh, this is this is all stuff that we've said before. Yeah, uh, this is this is. All and I know news. Mark's like, yeah, like it's. Um, at one point, I made the mistake of reading the code wrong and telling Mark incorrect information. I said that it wasn't random once, but it actually was. Uh, we, well, that's random. Uh, we corrected it since. He, he, he knows the correction. Um, but yes, there's a random element of it, and there's player activity required, and there's a delay element to it. Um, so it'll never trigger. It'll never visibly happen right after you do the thing that triggers it. It's, so real it's quick, not intended to be something that wasn't meant to be a mystery of like that someone would try to solve. Uh, real quick, um, Ashtarothi, why is why are we talking about this? Yeah, okay. Let me let me briefly go over this. So, on the uh, perimeter gate, right there there is a phenomenon called the Children of Light, and there's a there's a uh, chronicle that kind of tells the story about why this phenomenon exists. And basically, every once in a while, there's this luminous light that kind of appears all around the gate and that's known as the children of light. And the story kind of tells about what that is. The thing is, is that no one ever knew what causes it to happen. And it's extremely rare. Uh, Mark 726 is an explorer and he has a blog called Eve travel in which he highlights different areas of space and like kind of the rare sites and whatnot. And he showcased the children of light, but in that 
he talked about the fact that he had never seen it. He'd never been able to make it happen. He'd never seen it before. And uh, so this was at the time we were doing hydrostatic podcasts and we were more focused. So uh, we decided to ask Fozzie, hey, is this, is this a thing that can be discovered? And as Fozzie just said, at first he thought it was. And so he said, yes. And so we put, we made this huge competition. I think we put a collector's edition of Eve online on, on as the bounty. Um, and everyone tried to figure out the children of Eve or the, uh, the children of light, um, uh, trigger for a few months. And then finally Fozzie came back and said, psych. <laughs> so he stopped. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a case where it uses some things in our dungeon system that aren't used very often that I wasn't very familiar with, and so yeah, I, I just fully misread it. And it is it is correct that it it is it requires a player action to trigger it, but it is not set up in a way that that any normal human being will be able to to tell what that action is because because of that delay and that randomness. But to bring this back to the auroras, there are all kinds of these sorts of things that are in Eve. Um, even like the blue explosions are like a lower version of it where there's, you know, if you're paying attention, there are rarer things to find and see and cool things. Eve Travel is a blog that's all about that, is finding a rare and unique sites within Eve. Wow. Yeah, I would love to add some more of those over time. I think almost all of them that exist in the game right now have been discovered um, of, of kind of those sort of visual Easter eggs in space. Uh, not quite all, but almost all. And I would love to start adding some more to get to make have it be more of a regular thing that people stumble. Yeah, create a whole new class of gameplay or player uh, seeking the new frontiers, the new things that are out there. What's interesting is is that all of this kind of comes full circle because then you the major challenge at that point is adding something without it becoming immediately detectable on hobo leaks, right? So, but the good news is that a lot of that stuff is server side, so you never have to expose it to the client. Well, and you've done a good job uh, at CCP of naming something in, uh, after the person that discovers it. Yeah, we try to do that when we can, yeah. Amazing incentive. All right, well, uh, we have really uh, had a, a good time talking to Fozzie, not just about the game, but uh, also about all the stuff it is to uh, be a developer. Um, after the show, we normally, if you're in talking in stations, discord, we pile into public and hang around for a while. Fozzie might be there. We won't tell you if he is or isn't. Um, but, uh, join us there. If you want, uh, want to say a program note, we now have a midweek show and it's a talking in stations midweek update. Uh, and that is Artemis, uh, who's bringing stuff and that is up and running. You will start to see that on, uh, Twitch, uh, but that will actually be on uh, Talking in Stations' own channel, that is Talking in Stations uh, on Twitch. And we also have TalkingInStations.com, which will direct you to all the places that you need to go and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, so look out for two Talking in Stations programs per week, and we're doing more stuff uh, after this holiday season. And I want to thank primarily the people who support us. Uh, financially, and those are the Patreons. If you want to be a Patreon subscriber, there's some special stuff for you, but we mainly want to say thanks because you're the one that allowed this to really happen. All right, and uh, thank you very much, McLeod, for engineering today and putting up great images. I want to say thanks to Carneros and Ashtarathi and our guests, uh, uh, Omar and Apollo, and especially for... CCP Fozzie, who came uh, a short notice and talked with you guys on Talking in Stations. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime. 
Uh, all right. So we will see you next week on Talking in Stations. <laughs>